1: Thanks for downloading this edition of the program, and I do hope The mass participation of women in communist-led partisan resistance in Yugoslavia was one of the most remarkable phenomena of World War II. Thousands of women, mostly from rural areas, joined the guerrilla army, and many of them took direct military roles. By the end of the war, thousands reached officer ranks. My guest today has explored this unique phenomenon. Jelena Patinic was awarded her doctorate at Stanford University, where she is now working. Her recent book, Women and Yugoslav Partisans, A History of World War II Resistance, was published by Cambridge University Press. It explores the complex participation of Yugoslav women in war and examines changing gender norms that the war and this participation caused. Jelena Patinic, welcome to New Books Network.
0: Thank you. Thanks for having
1: me. Let's start with a broad introduction of the Second World War in Yugoslavia. For our listeners not so familiar with the region. The war was very complex. Could you tell us more about the side, the Communist Party, and its relation to the Soviet Union? Um,
0: yes. Well, the war in Yugoslavia was, as you said, extremely complex. And uh, it is something of a challenge to introduce it in a couple of words, but let me try. I think it might be good to start um, with a couple of words uh, about the country itself. Um, it was truly... Um, a paradigm of East European diversity, a true mosaic of cultures, uh, languages, religions, and peoples, including Slavic-speaking peoples like Serbs, Croats, Slovenes, Muslims, and Bosniaks, Macedonians, Montenegrins, uh, as well as non-Slavic uh, populations, including Albanians, Hungarians, Germans, uh, the Roman people. Um, uh, there was also a Jewish minority and other minorities in the and the country, unfortunately, in the interwar period, was, was uh, troubled by, by uh, interethnic strife. Uh, the country got into the war um, not so much because Hitler thought it would be its, its kind of prime interest in the Balkans, but because uh, he sought troops to Greece to help the Italian troops uh, were stuck there. And the route to Greece actually let, would lead German troops to Yugoslavia. So Under pressure, the Yugoslav government signed a tripartite pact, which then provoked a pro-British faction in in the Air Force to stage a coup and overthrow the government. Now, um, the retaliation for for the coup was truly brutal. The country was thereupon bombed, occupied, and dismembered. Four occupational armies uh, in, in, in the dismemberment of the country. The Germans, Italians, Hungarians, and then also Bul- Bulgarians later on. And each of these invaders uh, claimed a piece of the Yugoslav territory. So there were areas that were directly annexed, and others that were occupied and then sometimes ruled with the help of local civil administrations. Uh, besides the annexed and, and occupied territories, um the, the central part of, of the country, which basically would include most of, of uh, today's Croatia and all of today's Bosnia-Herzegovina, was incorporated into uh, a state that was nominally autonomous. It was called the Independent State of Croatia, which was placed under the, the fascist Ustasha regime. Now, um the conquest and, and occupation of the country marked the beginning of a, of a really really catastrophic people, period. I'm sorry for the for the Yugoslav peoples. Um, in practically all territories that were um, occupied, uh, the new rulers instituted policies of, of racial classification, economic exploitation, and also political terror, which were very often followed by. Uh, mass deportations and mass killings and so the brutality uh, of the occupational system uh, very shortly engendered resistance which took the form of guerrilla warfare. Um, The the occupational policies also polarized the local uh, population along uh, both ethnic and, and ideological lines and so locals were kind of fitted one against another, and I uh, there were many, many factions, local factions that were involved in the series of civil wars there. But I'm just gonna mention a couple of major players, fascist groups, such as I've already already mentioned, Royalist Chetnik movement was one of the participants in the civil war, and obviously the communist led partisans, uh, who were all uh, involved in a in a multi-sided civil war. So during the four years in the region years of World War II in the region, uh, we do not see one. We see multiple wars. A war of resistance was taking place simultaneously there with a series of uh, genocidal attacks and civil wars, and uh, altogether I think they claimed the lives of about one million people.
1: Wow. and so since this conflict was so brutal, how come that women engaged so directly into it? Was precisely this war brutality the main reason behind it?
0: Mm. Yes, so brutality, I think, definitely played a role. Uh, but um, but I think when we think about it, occupational policy, we know that in general, occupational policy does kind of shape the response of the population. To that, I would also add other factors, and that would be the nature of collaboration in the region. And some of the collaborationist regimes were truly notorious for their brutality, um, such as the the Yugoslavia. Uh, regime in, in the independent state of Croatia, with ethnic cleansing and genocide on their daily repertoire. And other occupational, other collaborationist regimes were not that much better either. So uh, female partisans do very often come from war ravaged villages in which whole communities, including men, women, and children, were targeted on account of their ethnicity. And many, many women veterans do mention their experience of violence at the hands of of the invaders or one of the or one of the uh, sides in, in the civil war, uh, and and a desire for for revenge from that for that uh, violence when they talk about their motivation to join the partisans. But um, but if if by um if by women's involvement in war you mean guerrilla warfare, I think there are other factors too. Uh, to, to have conditions for guerrilla warfare, you actually have to have the right terrain. And I think in the Balkans, in the Western Balkans, the terrain was, was indeed, uh, uh something that, that, that lent itself to guerrilla warfare. In fact, there was a, a long and very still living tradition of insurgency and guerrilla warfare, uh, at the time of, of World War II that the local factions could draw upon. But when it comes to women's role per se, I would emphasize uh, the importance of the ideology of the leadership—that uh, is, the the degree to which the leadership is willing to accept women—really, I think, made made a difference. And in the Yugoslav case, we see this willingness not merely to accept and tolerate women, so to speak, but we actually see sustained efforts, sustained efforts on the part of the partisan leadership to actively reach out uh, to women and to mobilize them into their movement. So the partisan leadership um, to, to to reach out to women developed a political rhetoric, a language, to attract women to the movement, and as important, to, to legitimize, to justify their active participation in, in the war in the eyes of the conservative public. And in addition to developing a new language to speak about women's mobilization, they developed an institutional framework for, for women's recruitment. And I think this would really distinguish the partisans from all their local opponents, from all other factions who were involved in those wars and the who operated in the same context with respect to other factors that, that we mentioned, the brutality, um, the collaboration, the nature of collaboration, <coughs> the terrain, the traditions of insurgency, and so on. So I think to explain the phenomenon, one really needs to look at the partisans' gender politics. And that's, that's what my book was.
1: So you have mentioned the rhetoric of the partisan leaders. So what was their strategy in mobilizing women? How that rhetoric played out?
0: Well, um, I think that's where it gets really interesting. So, um, as I said, they develop a language, a rhetoric to appeal to women. And their rhetorical strategy actually rested upon a combination, a very deft, a very skillful combination, of traditional Balkan culture with a revolutionary language. So what we see is that in its appeals to women, the Communist Party typically emphasized um, its dedication to to gender equality, to women's rights. Right when they talk to women, they talk about the advantages that uh, women would be, would be accorded in in the in the new regime that the communists are about uh, to establish. But parallel to such statements, uh, the party also drew on patriarchal folk traditions. So, in fact, um, in order to appeal to the population's uh, patriotic feelings, um, the party invoked the imagery of freedom fighters against foreign invaders from um, South Slavic traditional South Slavic folklore, and these references to, to those epic heroes, the freedom fighters allowed the, the party, which was an urban-based communist organization, to claim continuity or lineage, if you wish, with, with those legendary heroes. And thus, in a way, to establish cultural authority among, among the peasants. And perhaps most important, uh, this traditional culture also provided, uh, provided uh, models for women's participation in war. So the communists invoked the images of of epic heroines to attract women to the movement and to also legitimize uh, the female partisan in the eyes of the populace. So they represented the female partisan as as the supreme or the most radiant successor to the old epic heroines.
1: Then I was just wondering, uh, where the communist leader actually aware that uh, such rhetoric and connection with uh, traditional culture, but that... Then allowed for women's warfare participation, were they aware that it might destabilize gender norms? Was it actually deliberate or was it a side effect?
0: The destabilization of gender norms? Yes, yes. Uh, they did. This is part of their ideology. They was uh, the leadership, the leadership of the partisan movement was communist. And uh, these people were, well, communists, right? They had this ideology. Uh, Which was their driving force? They took their ideology. They did these these guys did take their ideology seriously, and they, um, gender ideology was part of their egalitarian script, their ideological script. So they did uh, believe that um, that the new polity of equals, and that this new polity, they are about to build, women would have a different role. Um, But whether they expected disinvocation of traditional models. To help in uh, in breaking those traditional norms, um, I don't think so. I think their primary goal was actually to to draw the population in, to uh, attract women to the movement, and uh, this is their mobilization strategy.
1: Okay, so once yeah. once these women were mobilized, actually, what kind of roles did they have in the in the partisan units?
0: They took a range of roles in the partisan units. Um, they served in both combat and uh, non combat capacities. So, some of the most prominent women, just to mention some of the roles, um, some of the most prominent women, typically those who were pre war communists, um, they served in political roles, as, as let's say political commissaries in, in the partisan army. And, and the partisan army was largely modeled. On, on the kind of Soviet model. So the so in the army they had be, beside in the in the in the staff of each unit, they had in in addition to to military commanders, also representatives of the party, political commissaries. So women who typically had some party credentials would would be found in those roles. They also worked in the agitation and propaganda departments of the partisan status. Um, other women could be found in in various um clerical and communication positions such as typists, secretaries, uh, radio and telegraph operators. Um, Many of them were used as as couriers for intelligence gathering, um, liaison personnel, and in various other auxiliary positions. But um, I think the most conspicuous um, of all the women in the partisan units were two groups of uh, female fighters on the one hand and partisan nurses on the other hand uh, female fighters obviously stood out because they were a novelty they were a mass participation of, of women in, in, in uh, military mass participation of women uh, was, was a very new phenomenon in the region Female nurses, on the other hand, stood out because they were truly numerous, because of their numerical preponderance in the units. Typically, if you were to find a, a, a woman in any partisan unit, you are most likely to find one in the, in the medical sector. So, the term partisan, or female partisan, um, which does tend to kind of signify all women in the partisan movement. Has traditionally been most often used in, in reference to either the female fighter or the female nurse. And um, a typical representation of, of the female fighter, of the female partisan in general, in Yugoslav culture, typically also um, um, is that of an armed girl who also tends to the wounded. So it's, it's kind of an intersection of a, of a fighter and a nurse. Um, most female fighters were rank and file soldiers. Several did rise to the ranks, and some. At sometimes, they also kind of. We can see them commanding smaller units, such as platoons. Uh, but for the most part, they did not command.
1: How was it accepted by male partisans that they were commanding units?
0: Um, not always well. <laughs> and one of the one of the uh, one of the legends of the of the. Uh, of the partisan movement that we see uh, repeated in both the partisan press during the war, but then also in memoirs, in in, in post-war cultural production, is this story of proving worthy. That is kind of the common theme, which again kind of draws on the imagery that was uh, developed in 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 the epic poetry before so um so what we see is typically in a typical story a woman joins the unit and she is met with the mistrust of of male uh, of her male comrades who could believe that the woman is capable of of fighting and then she proves herself worthy in battle and thus earns their respect and and uh, and equality, if you wish. I see. So that's, that's, I think, uh, one of the ways in which they kind of reconcile this traditional, uh, set of gender values and, uh, this epic imagery with their egalitarian agenda. It's kind of the image of a woman who proves worthy of equality. And that's, that, that is to serve, sort of, uh, as a legitimization of both women's participation in warfare and of the egalitarian order that is to come out of the war.
1: But I guess that uh, in the reality of guerrilla warfare, that being a partisan nurse was equally dangerous, right?
0: Well, probably, yes. Probably, it it was um, any any position in the partisan units was something that was life threatening, and uh, they operated in extremely difficult conditions. So the the mortality rates for for female nurses are not as high as they are for fighters. But it was certainly a very, very dangerous um, task.
1: So was there also a myth afterwards about partisan nurses as there was for partisans female soldiers?
0: I do not see that many proving worthy narratives mm-hmm. because the nurse is typically uh, more in line with the traditional expectations of what a woman's role might be. And, uh, and so for female nurses, I see less of an attempt to justify and legitimize Oh, I see. With a the, with the, with the female nurse, we see a different problem, and that is an attempt on at the part of the party to show that that kind of role is worthy of respect, because combat is this, this primary and most respected duty. And so traditionally, we see that nursing is not accorded the same respect. So many young female nurses are... Uh, had difficulty getting the respect and authority that they needed to be efficient in their jobs in the partisan army.
1: Okay, um, another very unique phenomenon and central to your book was this organization called the Anti Fascist Women's Front. Could you please introduce our listeners to this organization and what was its importance?
0: Yes, um, so uh, the anti-fascist front of women, or the Afroge, as it's it's the abbreviation in in the local languages, was actually the only gender-specific organization in the partisan movement. And so early in the war, uh, when they realized that men will be leaving for the front, and that actually it would be women who would have to take over. Uh, the agricultural production and the rear, and also their rear support system, the partisan leaders declared, decided to form, um, to form a special organization that would be in charge specifically of mobilizing women into the movement. So um, in that respect, uh, the afro was a unique and really original wartime creation, and it operated on a surprising blend. I think of three very incompatible incompatible elements, or seemingly incompatible elements. On the one hand, we have communist ideology. On the other hand, we have peasant custom. And finally, we also have feminist organizational experience. Um, Let me explain. Um, The part about the communist ideology is probably easiest to explain, because the leaders and organizers of the anti-fascist front of women were all female communists, members of of the Communist Party or the Communist Youth League. Um, The really interesting part is is uh, the one about feminist experience. Um, So, namely, because the Communist Party was banned uh, in the interwar Yugoslavia and operated underground in the 1930s, As did most communist parties in Europe at the time, the Yugoslav communists adopted the the popular front line, which was dictated from Moscow, obviously. And that uh, policy demanded that the communists form very broad alliances with various non-communist, anti-fascist groups and organizations. So what happened is that Yugoslav communists, uh, young women, uh, they joined, or infiltrated, if you wish, um, various legal organizations, and so several communist girls just, uh, joined forces with um, feminists in legal women's organizations, most prominently in the Alliance of Women's Movement in Yugoslavia. and. Um, their presence truly radicalized and energized the feminist movement. And so they organized several very successful actions for women's suffrage prior to the war. And it was actually those communist women who had experience in the interwar feminist movement that would form the core, uh, the basis of the kind of female leadership responsible then for the development of the anti-fascist front of women during the and finally the third element, <clears throat> excuse me, the peasant custom, where does that come in? Uh, well, the, 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 the organization's main goal was to mobilize women and to channel their labor towards the partisan war effort. And it did so, the organization did so largely by adapting local uh, rural traditions and sort of peasant custom. To To a new institutional framework that the communists set up during the war, um, let me give you a couple of examples. So uh, women who were recruited by by the Af, they contributed mostly through an extension of their uh, old traditional customary roles and uh, uh, and responsibilities in, in their village communities and their families. They uh, cooked, they knitted and cleaned, they prepared food for the partisans they uh, tended to the wounded, they laundered, mended, and stuff like that. And so so the the, the communist activists, Afghai activists frequented village gatherings and very often joined um uh, women's conversations about their current daily concerns. And um so they would visit women village gatherings like Prela or siela. those were traditional gatherings in which women uh, would get together to, to, to socialize and do some kind of handwork. And they transformed those gatherings into partisan workshops of sorts. Uh, they also organized labor groups of women to carry provisions to the partisans in the woods. And so they did, did that in a, in a fairly remarkably structured way and uh, by using very modern organizational devices. And so when they they did thereby as they turned those traditional customs into kinds of catalysts of, of mass participation in very modern warfare. So in actually, in, in this partisan institutional setting, just like in their rhetoric, we see that this traditional element was adapted in, 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 a, in, a, in a modern key.
1: I see. Uh, can we also see some of that uh in the uh, publications that the Affege made in some of their uh, several magazines that they have published. And I was also wondering what kind of texts were actually found in those magazines, how they reflected on the war, new equality, and the opportunities, and also on this peasant culture.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, th- th- it, I think those magazines are really also remarkable by themselves, because there were multiple wartime journals that were issued by various regional um, Affiliated organizations, nearly two dozens altogether, uh, in the course of the war, Um, and and this is indeed a a fascinating collection of journals, uh, which were created by women for women and and wrote about women. Um, Well, to be sure, I want to emphasize this: they were tools for the dissemination of propaganda, but they also did feature some educational pieces and political. Texts in, in in an accessible language, in a simple accessible language that that, uh, that that the mainly peasant readership could understand. They sometimes offered very basic lectures in Yugoslav history and culture, um, also explanations of recent political developments. They did point at new opportunities for women in um, in the new common system. Um, and most of all, they tried to encourage women to contribute to the partisans, to send their children to the, to the partisan army. They told stories and anecdotes of, of women who did.
1: I see. So, and as I said, uh, many of these texts were written by women, for women. And then I was wondering what kind of space they had to negotiate gender relations within the, within the movement, particularly because uh, this was all pretty much controlled by the Communist Party. Did they have any space to perhaps criticize gender norms within the movement?
0: I have not seen... They were, they were organs of party propaganda, and there is little doubt about that. Um, I do not see too many criticisms of... Of gender relations within the movement, other than the concluding worthy story that I already um, described, but there were several several really shining positives about these journals, and I think really the main contribution um, in 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 challenging or or um, or transforming gender norms, I think lay in, in the fact that these journals gave public recognition to peasant women's work and to their words. And that was a recognition really without a, without precedent or rival in the region. Uh, so those generals gave political significance to traditional women's tasks as well. So, um, so tasks and work like knitting, so laundry, mandate, cooking, now became legitimate ways to contribute to, to the war, to the national liberation. And those who have performed those tasks, uh, most of their lives without much recognition, now became praised, in a sense, as heroines of the war. Right? And uh, similarly, and I think just as important, peasant women were uh, in those journals for the first time given both an odd authorship and an audience in public, and not only in the Germans. They were encouraged in to, to speak at various mass conferences that were organized by with the affigee, and their words were then heard by the masses and quoted in, in, in the in the journals.
1: They also had the voting rights within the units.
0: Yes, so that was a that was a new thing that the Partisans introduced already during the war. They gave the women Yugoslav women for the first time in Yugoslav history the right to vote and be elected to uh, office. So, uh, so that that's a remarkable change.
1: So, Okay, so let's return to the partisan and units and their daily life. You have already mentioned that uh, with, uh, within these texts, uh, many of these traditional chores that women did were actually given new value. So could you tell us more about gender roles within the units and the usual division of labor? Yes, uh,
0: so I, d- I, did. I did spend lots of time studying daily practice. Uh, in the units um, and the division of labor among them, those among the many topics. So I was particularly interested um, in this issue of how ideology functions in in unscripted conditions on the ground, because these people were egalitarian, but then with a large number of women in the units, they did find themselves in, in something I would call unscripted conditions. They had very little guidance from Moscow and from the Soviets in that respect during the war. And they certainly had no local precedents to, to, to consult. So very often they had to decide on the spot who would do what and the units, who would do the laundry, who would cook, who would do other chores, uh, what kind of relations between the sexes would be acceptable. So I was intrigued by those very mundane issues such as division of labor. Right. And the units. And so when we look at these issues of daily practice, we basically see that gender did remain a central organizing principle, even even in a revolutionary guerrilla army, right? And that actually traditional gender values and traditional hierarchy did persist uh, for all the egalitarianism of the leadership. And let me give you a couple of examples. Uh, internal party documents do complain a lot about individual military commanders who refuse to accept large number of women into their units. They also repeatedly refer to instances of prejudice and what we would call discrimination nowadays in the units, which kind of note that female partisans were considered inferior that they were politically and militarily neglected, that they were sometimes treated improperly. And in general, women were given less training and opportunity to advance. And also, they were often assigned to do the most tedious and least rewarded tasks. So, in fact, this 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 persistence of <clears throat> excuse me, traditional notions uh, uh, about gender norms uh, was well, probably nowhere more obvious than in those mundane matters that involved daily uh, chores and division of, of labor in the units. So the official party position was that of uh, equal participation in all tasks by both genders. But uh, what happened in most units is that you know, it was expected that women, even if they were fighters, also performed. Uh, cooking, laundering, washing dishes, fetching water, um, sewing, mending, and cleaning, all of these uh, were expected. Um, that the, All of these were the tasks that women were expected to do. And examples abound. Um, I think I write about this example of Rama Jankovic, who was posthumously, posthumously actually uh, proclaimed a national hero. At first, she was the only woman in her company in, the, in a Bosnian battalion early in and she alone um, did the laundry, hand-washing it in a creek for all the men of her unit, and she at the same time served as both a nurse and a fighter. And we would see cases of, of platoon, platoon commanders who, who would wash the cloths of, her, of their fighters while the fighters, uh, male fighters rested. And so most partisan actually assumed those duties with which uh, with no complaints, very few complaints, and very often voluntarily. And so what is also very interesting to me is that even female will in female party leaders, even the most prominent women of the of the partisan movement took it upon themselves actually to do those domestic chores on um, the and there were, of course, communists, so they had to find a way to explain the practice to themselves. And, and
1: how was it explained?
0: So, I, I find it really interesting, and I cite that, and I, I quote that in my, in my book. So, I have the words of Mitra Metrovich, who was one of the most prominent party party women, uh, one of the female leaders, one of the key figures of the of the affligé. So, she came, she explains this, she came up with a kind of theoretical explanation, and she says, Uh, She talks about how women alternate on duty during during those chores and then she says uh, the reason that they decide to do that is because they see those chores as a burden for women in general and that's a burden for them as well and they think that there is no reason to introduce male comrades to such duties because and they are fighting for that too is that these duties will disappear for women as well someday. Um, and then she concludes with, and I was going to paraphrase, phrasing what she said. Um, so male comrades are happy with our theory. That's how she concludes. I with. see, I see. <laughs> For the majority of partisans, male uh, or female, um, I think this division of labor only seemed natural. And no grand theory was really necessary to justify it. There were really very few dissenting voices, as I said. Peasant girls, who were the majority, of females in the movement um, were actually used to both serving men and, and to hard physical labor. And so for them, there was nothing extraordinary in the expectation that they should continue to do that. Um, the party did condemn these practices, though, but very little was actually done on the ground to suppress them. And so that practice continued until the very end of the war in, in, in many units. It, it just seems that it was simply easier for the leadership to accommodate those traditional notions than to than to confront them.
1: I see, and you have mentioned Mitra Mitrović, and she was the wife of Milova Gilas and they were definitely not the only couple within the and movement. So I was wondering what kind of relations between sexes were allowed, and how did the Party react to relate to relationships between the units?
0: Uh, well, that that was a that was a big concern actually for the leadership, because first, of uh, women's presence in the units did put um. Did put the partisan leadership did, did present some uh, the before the partisan leadership some some major challenges for one uh, uh, the fact that that young women lived and masse with men in partisan units uh, was was actually something that provided the partisans adversaries with terrific propaganda material um, so basically the female partisan became a favorite a favorite target of enemy propaganda during the war, and much of that propaganda focused on her sexuality and on her presumed promiscuity, in particular, and also on the alleged uh, depravity uh, and, and sexual excess that, that was taking place in partisan units in general. And also, um, women's presence uh, in the units did give rise to some actual tensions in the units. So. So in order to fight this propaganda, on the one hand, and also to address those real problems in the movement, um, the partisan leadership did have to come up with, with some solutions, and they instituted a really strict code of, of sexual behavior. So basically what that meant was that the party discouraged romantic relationships and marriages among the partisans. Uh, marriages were explicitly banned for, 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 uh, for staff, partisan staff members are also typically separated couples and assigned groups to different units units, once their relationship uh, would be discovered. Sometimes they also penalized illicit sexual behavior such as promiscuity or cheating on one's spouse or even getting married or into a new relationship without party permission for for party members specifically. And um, this relatively strict code um, actually, accommodated or catered to the patriarchal uh, norms of, of the peasant masses who populated the units, but it also, in a way, allowed the Communist Party to to intervene and and do so in a very modern interventionist manner in in the most personal um, relationships of, of of its followers. Yeah, and one more thing, perhaps it's worth to add, Um, though the partisan code um, did not, in theory, uh, make any difference or differentiation between the sexes in in respect to this code. um, Those who made decisions on the ground, officials on the ground, commanders on the ground, ordinarily identified women. So it was fairly typical as the destabilizing factor in the units. And so, what would happened is that women did figure disproportionately on the receiving end of any punitive measures that, that were introduced for kind of incidents of a sexual nature.
1: I see. That's very very important. Um, so could we also say that this is uh, how uh, patriarchal morality was preserved within the within the partisan units?
0: Yes, yeah, so and this patriarchal morality, um, or rather the discipline that they introduced, did appeal, did cater to the, the, the peasant patriarchal morality, and uh, it 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 actually did replicate it in some way. But it did so in a very modern way, right? It's it's, it's basically the main argument of my book is that um is uh, is that they drew on those traditional. Balkan culture and re in a modern, in a modern uh, revolutionary key. So I think that actually their mobilizing genius uh, lay precisely in this rhetorical, institutional, and practical adaptation of, of peasant tradition in a very radical modern revolutionary key. And of course, this strategy uh, allowed them to build a very large self-sustaining re- resistance movement uh, to justify and, uh, women's participation and, and, to, and to participate uh, in warfare but it also had, had a had a flip side in that it institutionalized those traditional practices uh, in, in the in the in the partisan movement and the, and the nascent communist state that they uh, started to build a. Leader.
1: It's fascinating, and this story about the partisan women is fascinating during the war. I was wondering, what happened to them after the war? Did women retain some position within the army? Did they return to their homes? What happened after?
0: Uh, Well, the partisans obviously won the war, and um, they established their own communist regime, and then launched a series of programs um, on the Soviet model. To transform society, right? And that transformation actually involved sweeping uh, legal reforms, aiming to, to, to solve the, the so-called woman question. Um, and they did give lots of rights, new rights to women. And in that respect, I think they were really true to their wartime promise. So the new constitution that was instituted during the after the war in 1946, Confirmed women's right to vote, vote and be elected. Uh, it also established this framework for, for, legal, for women's legal equality, including equal pay for equal work, and also a fairly comprehensive um, social welfare program. Um, and women became actually its primary beneficiaries. So when it comes to their legal and political rights, the new state did bring about a major change. And um, what happened to women who were participants in the movement, like women or female recruits, everywhere after, after World War II, um, most female partisans uh, were demobilized. They were just discharged from the army. And actually, uh, the military service law after the war um, said that female citizens could be drafted into some services in the preparatory stages for war during the war, but they were not to serve as permanent military commanders. So in that sense, the the female partisans um, had this, a similar fate as as many of the of the military women that uh, participated elsewhere during World War II. Um, there was one thing that I think distinguished uh, female partisans from their counterparts elsewhere, particularly in the West. Those women in the West were largely removed from the workforce. Uh, so to make room for uh, soldiers returning from the front. Yugoslav women, in contrast, because Yugoslavia was undergoing this process of modernization under the communist rule and industrialization, so Yugoslav women did not go back to the home after the war. Instead, uh, the majority of of, of them moved to, the majority of former female partisans, moved to towns and cities and uh, found employment or assumed administrative positions in the new, new uh, state apparatus. So in the new regime, um, those who were lower ranking or rank-and-file female partisans probably could hope for some clerical post, um, posts in um United States or, or party bureaucracy. Um, the most prominent women, those who have... Pre-war uh, party credentials, uh, and who also had important functions during the war, could hope for a uh, position in the higher party committees, in various government posts, or uh, any of the offices in the in the in this administrative new administrative apparatus. Um, women with medical training typically tended to remain with the professions, and some of some of them uh, select few. Uh, did uh, continue to work for the army.
1: And what happened with their own organization, the AFG, that you have talked about?
0: Yes, so so um, actually many party women who had fought in the war also retained or assumed them some uh, positions in the AFFG. In the um, the FG, uh remained actually in charge of work with women after the war, uh, that is in the initial post-war years. So, there are several reasons for that, even though this was an organization that had a clear wartime goal of its mobilization, I think the party still needed the organization for several reasons after the war. And one of those is the fact that the the country needed reconstruction. And um, the party's goal, namely the creation of an industrialized nation, socialist nation, Really needed uh, the development of a large industrial proletariat, and that included women uh, as well as men. So drawing women, attracting women, uh, drawing them into the labor force uh, was as important for the regime as it was uh, drawing them into the army during the war. Okay, you you... Sorry. Yeah. So the organization continued to 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 work with women and to help their transition and the building of this large industrial proletariat. And also was uh, was um, in charge of kind of providing women's education and helping them uh, transform into equal and deserving citizens of, of the new state. So in, in the first, first years uh, after the war, it continued to work with women. But as soon as this kind of revolutionary era was finished, And uh, Tito won his battles against first the reactionary forces, and then also Stalin. Um, The organization was disbanded, and it actually itself dissolved in 1953, and was uh, in line with with various decentralizing uh, trends that the country was experiencing at that time. And so uh, its successors, in some ways, were relatively... Um, relatively weaker and definitely decentralized organization that organizations that never managed to match the, the organizational power and uh, enthusiasm and uh, command of the kind of mass following that uh, the Affigé did. And in in a way, I think the, the dismantling of the organization in 1953 really ended a unique era in the history of of women's movement uh, in the region. It was uh, a period of unprecedented politicization politicization and mobilization of women.
1: Uh, You have tackled in your book that the Communist Party created and recreated narrative about female fighters. I was wondering how that narrative changed and what happened with it following the collapse of communism.
0: Yes, so uh, the memory of, of of the female partisan and the ways that it changed, uh, in the post-war years, in some ways, it represents uh, uh, the story, the fate of of, of socialist Yugoslavia. Um, if we look, if we examine the ways that that the female partisan was memorialized in uh, in the cultures in the region, um, one can actually trace her journey from uh, a revolutionary icon par excellence in the immediate post-war period, and all the way to the oblivion that we witness in the the present. So what happened is that after the war, the female partisan emerged as the main preeminent symbol of Tito's Yugoslavia. Um, There are several reasons for that, but most obviously the partisan war was the foundational myth of Tito's state, of the communist state, and um, the female partisan was a central character in that mythology. Um, so basically her official image was based on notions of heroism and sacrifice for for a greater cause. And that image was promoted widely in various official commemorations of the war war memorials, in communist historiography, in popular historical texts. And it was also shared interestingly by uh, Yugoslav literature and cinematography in the early post-war years in the 40s and 50s. Uh, it's, I think, the prime example is the very first feature of picture film of Tito's Yugoslavia, Slavica. That was actually a movie about a female partisan. So the, this kind of foundational movie of, of a new cinematography was was a movie about a female partisan who fought heroically and died um, at the hands of the of the occupiers.
1: That is very interesting because now we can observe that the remembrance of women in the war is gaining momentum in the UK and in other Western European countries, but yet it is neglected where women challenge existing gender, gender orders to the fighting roles as in the Balkans. So, in your opinion, what Yugoslav state should have done to remember these women and what can be done today?
0: Well, I can probably not talk what the state should have done, but I can perhaps tell you what I think why why it is the reason that we do not have similar uh, similar uh, attempts at, at remembering uh, the phenomenon. And so one, one obvious reason that I see is um, the fact that the war in Yugoslavia was not one but many wars. And among those many wars were, were a series of very brutal civil wars with both ethnic and ideological uh, connotations. And whenever you have a civil war... Coming up with a uh, with, uh, with one unifying narrative is, is clearly difficult. So countries that did experience World War II as a civil war typically don't have like home front and and the same remembers of women's participation in, um, in the home front. And the second, I think probably more important reason uh, as to why we don't see why why we witness this oblivion today. Has actually lots to do with the with the hyper politicization of memory that I write about, and particularly the memory of, of World War II in the region. Um, and it was clearly politicized, used and abused by previous regime to for for its own purposes. Um, and uh, the fact it has to do with the fact that the female partisan was and remains such an important and potent symbol of the communist regime. And of the Yugoslav nations, with, with both of which I think the elites and, uh, of the successor states in the region want to disassociate. So, uh, as long as the memory of the war remains central, it seems to me, to the current to the current interests of the political elites in the region, um, I'm not too hopeful that much will change in this respect. Of course, I mean, if we look at any state sponsor. Memory of the past—it's it's, it's always and everywhere, in some ways, associated with legitimation and, and a kind of. There is some legitimation work there that is involved in a national identity, and it's and it's not too much different in the UK or, or US. But in the Balkans, it's we are really talking about hyper-politicization and the centrality to that, uh, the centrality of the imagery of World War II to that process, and so I see that when some new generation some new generations, perhaps, or new scholars in the region can approach the phenomenon less as a political project and more as a, as a, as a historical subject. And I would add to that a truly fascinating historical subject. Uh, we can hope that there will be some space in, in, in the public eye for, for the remembrance of, of this phenomenon.
1: Jelena Batanich, we have to end here but that was lovely. Thank you very much for taking the time to talk for the New Books Network
0: Thank you